0: Hello, and welcome to the Science of Performance. This is a new podcast in the Free Trail Network, sponsored by BioTechnology. My name is Dan Feeney, and I'm going to be your host. Just a little background on me before I can talk about all the interesting guests that we are going to have on this season. I did a PhD in neuromechanics from the University of Colorado Boulder, and I spent the last five years building a biomechanics laboratory at Technology. We work with most of the leading brands across the world, and we've tested a number of different pieces of footwear, everything from snowboarding boots, alpine ski boots, to trail running shoes. I wanna take you into a lot of the learnings that I've learned over these last five years, exposing some of the nuances, some of the areas where the science is gray, and really challenging some of the assumptions that I think are out there. I'm really excited to have you on this journey, and please leave comments and thoughts as to what you liked and what you don't like. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Science of Performance podcast, a podcast in the Free Trail Network sponsored by BioTechnology, and I'm your host, Dan Feeney. Today, I'm super excited because we've got two really awesome athletes and scientists to talk about everything from the biomechanics of running to nutrition. So we've got Keely Henninger, who I'm sure many listeners will already be well aware of. She's the recent winner of the Black Canyon 100. She has Western States coming up here soon, and she's the Free Trail Lead of Performance Coaching. We've got Kate Harrison, who I have the pleasure of working with. She's got a PhD in movement science. She was a Division One runner and All-American at West Virginia, including a second place finish at the NCAA 10K. She has published a number of different articles and abstracts on the biomechanics of movement. And she's currently a manager of biomechanics at BOA. So thanks, both of you, so much for coming on. Thanks for
1: having us. Thanks for having us. Cool.
0: So what I'd love to maybe start with, Keely, if you don't mind, could you start talking about, I think a lot of people know you probably as an incredible athlete. Could you talk about how you got into biomechanics and science and how you've related that to both your performance as well as sort of the actual nuts, nuts and bolts of research?
2: Yeah, so I did my undergraduate degree at Penn State University and for a while I just studied neuroscience and was really into neurology and everything to do with the brain and I had never even heard of biomechanics and so come my senior year I had decided to take a gap year from going to medicine going into medicine and so I started noodling around different labs and found Dr. Chalice at Penn State who does a lot of biomechanics research and he was actually doing an injury study at the time. I volunteered for the study, helped him with some of his like coding and was kind of hooked. And he introduced me to Dr. Roger Crom in Boulder and that's where I was planning to move to train. And so luckily, you know, Dr. Crom was super stoked to have me come into the lab kind of as like a gap year helper almost. And so I got to start doing some studies right away on the energetics of locomoting uphill. And so we were looking at how costly it was to, you know, walk or run at these really severe inclines. And for me, that was really cool because I was not only, you know, studying movement science, but I also was running uphills. And I had a ton of friends who were running uphills. And so I got to bring in my whole running community to start to learn from them. Um and that kind of led me on to my whole like career in science. So from that lab I got in, in at Nike and started in their engineering department doing a lot of stuff around performance and algorithm development around coaching. So we looked at a lot of things like critical velocity and VO2 Max and how we could predict those in something like a digital app. Um, and then I got super interested in the research lab there, started volunteering as like the only woman who could fit into the next percent shoe that was a men's size sample size and run the speeds they wanted. And so I got to start geeking out with all the scientists there about the 4% shoe and ultimately ended up landing a job in the Nike sports research lab about five years ago, um, initially studying bras and breast biomechanics, transitioning into injury, and then finally transitioning into female hormones and looking longitudinally at how those things things impact women's performance. And, you know, I think it's really cool to have gone into all of this because as I've been learning over my career, like I get to not only study it in the lab, but I also get to apply it to myself and apply it to other athletes. And so it's been a really, really fun journey for me. Um, Ultimately, you know, I ended up deciding that corporate science wasn't necessarily something I wanted to do for forever. So I ended up leaving that job last year, with hopes of pursuing medicine and hopefully tackling some of these issues that plague female athletes from a different lens, but but still you know, keeping all that research experience and using that in my future career as well.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I find so many people in the biomechanics field get into it because they like running and they love running. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what I hope to cover in this conversation. And we will get back to some of those energetic studies you did in Roger Crom's lab. But Kate, could you maybe also talk a little bit about how you decided to get into doing a PhD, and maybe very at a high level explain why were you particularly interested in the mechanics of, and related those to injury risk?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so very similar to Keely, I was an athlete. I, as you mentioned, ran at West Virginia University, so I was really interested in sports and performance, and was studying exercise physiology as an undergrad. Um, And kind of in deciding what to do next, it was right about that time that a lot of the, you know, barefoot running research was kind of hitting the mainstream. And, you know, for better, for worse, um, that becoming popular, it did get me kind of interested and saying, hey, you know, like biomechanics is something I don't know a lot about. Um, So decided to do a master's in biomechanics did, um, some footwear research, uh, but actually did a lot of research on, on pregnancy and gait and foot anthropometry. Um, but still kind of had this really, um, excitement for, for performance and and running. Um, so decided to do a PhD after my master's to get a bit more experience on that performance and, and running into things. And I think injury is, um, was a big thing in my mind, you know, I like. Most runners have had several injuries, and I think when you talk about performance injuries, one of those critical things, because if you're injured, you're, you're not racing, you're not performing at all. Um, so I think that's one of the, the big questions of our field.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If you wanna perform well, absolutely, you need to train a lot, and in order to do that, you need to stay healthy. So maybe we're gonna jump right into talking about a few of the different papers, and Kate, if you could maybe talk about one of the papers that came out of your PhD, The title is The Comparison of Frontal and Transverse Plane Kinematics Related to Knee Injury in Novice Runners. And I'd love for you to hear you talk about how thorny and tricky of an issue this is. And then Keely, maybe if you could jump in about how this either helps you or how these shades of gray maybe help you coach athletes.
1: Yeah. um, So in writing that paper, I guess, first of all, the motivation is that we know all runners get hurt a lot. Um, but novice runners actually get hurt more than, you know, people who have been running five, ten years. And it's the biggest reason that they quit running and you hear it all the time, right? Like novice runners, like it just hurts. It's miserable. It's not fun. Um, and so aside from all the scientific reasons, like it's good for your, your health, et cetera, like I just love running and I just want people to be able to enjoy the sport the way I do. Like, I think it can be a lot of fun if you get over that hump. Um, so, you know, if we can find a way to help novice runners get to, Um, that place where running feels good and they can do it healthily, that that would be a big win. Um, So in looking at biomechanics, to your point about it being thorny, I think we've gotten really good over the past decades at quantifying the loads that our bodies are subjected to as we run. Um, And so we can calculate, you know, how much uh, load is being applied to your knee, ankle, et cetera. What muscles are you using? Um, But I think... What we are less good at quantifying so far is how much load they can tolerate. So I think we're really good at measuring this one side of the equation. So let's say like knee abduction, which is one of the focuses of this paper. Um, Novice runners have more knee abduction, which is um, pretty well documented um, across a variety of sports that potentially contributes to knee injury. Um, But what's really hard to say is how much of that can a person tolerate. Um, So I think that's where it gets gets really tricky to match the load that we're measuring with the load that a person's body can absorb
0: Yeah, absolutely Obviously, I think a lot of people think biomechanics is just oh moving to the side for your ankle or knee is bad But that's probably not actually the case. Keely. How do you you look at something like this? (laughs)
2: Um, Well, first of all, I think you know to the to her, to Kate's point, um, this kind of stuff is very hairy because I think most studies that look at injury find that like just running causes injury. So, you know, it's like running inherently comes with a risk of injury. And so, you know, tackling that with novice runners is really difficult because you don't get their running gait assessment before you start coaching them. Most runners, you know, aren't doing strength training. They aren't working on their weaknesses. So you have no clue what they're coming into this program with. And so I tackle new runners or just very, very low volume runners just very cautiously because I find that the... There's like a very, very like tricky line where if you go over it, there is a really high risk of injury. And so you have to be fighting back to your athletes at first to not let them overdo it and kind of, you know, guide them into running really slowly and and really build them up slowly, which a lot of runners are not excited about. They're pretty upset about that, actually, and they want to do more. And I think that ultimately is what ends up in injury. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I always have a conversation with my athletes first to first, like, get their background history on their running, their previous injuries, running or non-running related, just to get a sense of, like, how their body is moving naturally and if there's anything that's going to be, you know, a discrepancy to begin with. And then I kind of talk them through, like, okay, well, do you have access to a physical therapist? Do you have access to a strength coach who can, you know, watch you move and make sure you're doing things that could help your running performance in the right way? And then if they do have access to that, that is, I think, very helpful and you can kind of incorporate that into your running program. Um, But otherwise, yeah, it's like building them up really slowly and trying to get that neuromuscular connection going before you start demanding tons of volume on them so that they actually can start recruiting the right muscle fibers and not just start, you know, running like a crazy person without actually getting their body ready for those miles.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. You, At least I think anecdotally, you see a lot of sort of this bimodality or two different types of injuries. For beginner runners, they tend to get a lot of shin splints. They tend to get a lot of specific injuries. And then there's sort of this valley of as people run a little bit more, they can tolerate something. They may be a little bit less likely to get injured. And then at the very elite end of sport, you're maybe acknowledging you're not just doing this for health. You're probably running a little bit more than just healthy. But that brings me to like, what can we do to reduce these injuries? And Keely, you and I talked a little bit about a study, and I know you said it wasn't published, but I'd love if you could maybe just talk about it. There was a longitudinal training study that you had worked on on strength training and injury rate. Could you maybe talk about this as sort of like, not a panacea, but this is a way that runners could maybe prevent injuries a bit, and maybe it helps affect some of the mechanics that Kate was talking about.
2: Yeah. Yeah, like I said previously, the the overarching theme of this study was that running in general caused injury. So it still was not like very descriptive in the fact that, you know, there's one way fits all or one size fits all in terms of if you run this way, you're not going to get injured. But there was slight correlation to following like a foot strengthening and lower leg strengthening program and increasing running volume um, that led to less injuries or led to less injuries in that population than those who did not complete the strength training. And so I do think like for those who aren't running crazy high volume, if you can put some time into strengthening all of those muscles and all the little tendons that are firing all the time uh, when you're running, there is going to be hopefully, you know, less injuries in your future. Again, super like not a huge study and just in that population, but something to think about.
0: And Kate, why do you think that might affect injury rate? Because we've seen that in a number of published studies, too. It seems that strength training does have some level of protective effect.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, And that was actually a follow-up to that first study you mentioned that I did as part of my PhD was having novice runners do a a strength and kind of plyometric training program. Um, So if you look at populations, like maybe not runners, but let's say basketball players, um, soccer players, they often do a lot of these kind of strength, um, and neuromuscular training programs. And they do find that that training helps to kind of improve some of these mechanics associated with injury, um, which I think is one side of the benefit. Um, but the other side is there's certainly effects to like the tissue quality. Like if you're doing the strength training, your muscles, your tendons, they're going to become stronger, more resilient. So potentially you're not only moving, um, in a quote-unquote healthier movement pattern uh, by doing these uh, programs, but you're also increasing that capacity. So even if you are putting a ton of load on on your body, um, it's it's able to kind of adapt and, and recover from that.
0: Yeah, I think that's one really nice take home message. I think about growing up running, there was almost invariably somebody at the track that was an old timer and they would tell you something about your running form was wrong. And I think that's partially why I got into biomechanics, because I run kind of goofy. I run on my toes. And um, I've always just thought there isn't really one right way to run, one correct way to run. However, there are a myriad of ways. And we just need to, to your point, Kate, maybe improve our tissue quality, improve the strength and the ability of ourselves to be resilient. Kind of switching gears from just running mechanics and injury, I'd love, um, Keeley, if you can maybe start talking. Kate, maybe you can see how this applies to your research as well. Keely, you've done a lot of research on hormonal cycles and how that's related to training and racing performance. And um, maybe if you could just start with your baseline understanding and kind of how you think about that personally and for athlete you coach, then we'll get into some of the papers that especially have recently come out on the topic.
2: Yeah. So I first got interested in tracking hormones in relation to performance. When I found myself falling victim to low energy availability, which is something that happens when you overtrain, underfuel, you know, kind of a combination of all of these things, and it leads to a lack of menstruation, at least in my case it did, which was from having negligible estrogen, progesterone, and circulating LH and FSH, which are the key sex hormones for females. Um, And so when I fell victim to that, um, I got super interested in the space because I was like, okay, this is clearly not helpful for performance. In fact, it actually is very detrimental to performance and it results in a lot of injuries. And so the lack of those hormones obviously is bad. And so that kind of spiked my interest of like, okay, well, if you are naturally menstruating and you have these monthly cyclical fluctuations of your hormones, does that also impact performance? And, you know, the general consensus is we don't know this this the field is very new and like most of science i think a lot of the experts in the field they keep learning more and they keep saying we actually have no clue (laughs) Um, but in terms of like how to practically take those very novel findings and apply them to athletes i think that's where you see the most ground being gained because a lot of athletes in my opinion or in my experience even just acknowledging There are different phases of their cycle and how they might impact performance gives them like such relief and acceptance of how they feel that day. And so while there's no, you know, really concrete science, that's like you must train this way on this phase of your cycle. I've found that just talking about it with them, having them track it in our log and then writing down how they feel throughout all of their runs like we can then look back together and we can actually see how, hey, you know what, you actually feel pretty crummy always around this time before you start your cycle, and that's okay. And it almost gives them the courage and confidence to tackle runs that normally they would back away from because they felt so crummy, because they know that it's okay that they feel this way and that it's common for them. And so a really good example I've had recently was an athlete – used to she came to me saying she really wanted to start tracking her cycle while she was running and training and we were doing this for a couple of years and then she had a race land on this the time where she feels the most crummy but we went back through her log started looking at exactly what she was doing during those times that made her feel less crummy versus more crummy And we kind of put together this little strategy for her before the race so that she would just go in feeling really confident that she would be able to do it regardless of the phase of her menstrual cycle by just changing, obviously, a little bit of her mindset and then a little bit of like what she did before and after the race, really prioritizing recovery, just getting to the race, feeling confident in herself.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that segues nicely, Kate, into another paper that you wrote. uh, Obviously, your performance is a bit of perception and reality. And if there's a mismatch, that can be challenging. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly related to peak performance, but also injury risk. And so, Kate, you wrote a paper looking at running readiness scales, especially in female novice runners. I'd love to see, one, if you could maybe describe that paper. And two, do you think any of that is maybe related to what Keeley's talking about?
1: Yeah. um, So in that paper, we were using... um, essentially a a type of movement screen in novice runners to try to understand maybe prior to starting to run, for example, or early in a a runner's career, we can identify um, if there are things they might be at risk for due to their movement patterns um, to see if maybe we can intervene before they get injured. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of kind of like fancy, like we have a lab here that will measure like very precise biomechanics, but that's still to um, at this point not accessible. All that technology is quickly coming, I hope. Um, but, um, yeah, if, if there's a simple way that like a therapist or a coach can kind of identify, hey, we might need to work on on strengthening this area. Um, maybe we can help athletes catch or be more preventative and proactive in their approach to getting started at running. Um, but you know, in connection to what Keeley said, which I think is really important and it, again, it gets to this like load versus capacity thing. I think, you know, red S and energy availability is, is so important for that, that capacity side of things. Um, so I think for so long the messaging was like oh people are going to start running to lose weight and they might be trying to like at the same time cut calories and i think that that's definitely start slowly starting to change um within let's say the elite running world but getting you know that message to novice runners like hey you actually you need to if you're going to start running you need to be fueling this otherwise you might not be able to continue it long term
0: yeah that's that's super interesting and obviously i think it ties back to the idea that there isn't a right way to run, but you need to individually figure out what works for you. And there's a paper that came out recently, and I think it's kind of contentious. And I'd love if maybe both of you could take talk about it and talk about what it means to you. I think one of the reasons that this is contentious is because I think within the scientific community, we a lot of times will use words and use phrases in the titles of papers that are slightly different from how the general population views something. You know, so if we're not sure about something, we might say there's no effect of. And in reality, that's probably not super, uh, that's a bit disingenuous to what we mean. And so for example, there's a study that came out recently and Keely, I'd love to get your thoughts on this a little bit. And the title is Current Evidence Shows No Influence of Women's Menstrual Cycle Phase on Acute Strength Performance or Adaptations to Resistance Training. And you know, it, maybe if I could just turn it over to you and say how you view this paper, what you think of it, and then maybe what you'd love the world to think beyond the title.
2: Yeah, Dan, so I remember talking to you about this a while ago, and I think my first response to this kind of a paper is that a review is only as good as the papers it's reviewing. And a lot of the papers that have been out on menstrual cycle phase have not been the best papers, um, to put it lightly, I guess. Um, And even being at ACSM, there's still a lot of studies going on that aren't tracking hormones to determine menstrual cycle phase. And so when I first read this title, obviously I was not very thrilled. And then I was even less thrilled when I was diving through the actual paper and looking at some of the results they were plotting because you find that they basically just drew average lines through all of the papers to show that like there's no real um, response. However, if you look along that line, there are crazy outliers both above and below the line that show there are responders and non-responders to menstrual cycle phase. Um, And then, you know, add in the fact that a lot of these studies aren't even determining menstrual cycle phase by, by looking at hormones, like the review, I think is just not, it's not helpful to this space because it's not highlighting the individual differences that we do see among athletes. And so, yeah, not super thrilled with this study. I do think that like when we're starting, because this field is so new, It is really cool that people are taking note of everything, but I think publishing something like this is kind of harmful to the field because it's not taking into account how different all of the the findings actually are and all the different methods that are used to actually determine menstrual cycle phase. And so, you know, I would love to see a review in five years after we start, you know, distilling out studies that actually use hormonal data to determine phase phase. Um, Until then, I don't think we can say definitively that the menstrual cycle phase does not impact performance when you see some people having, you know, upwards of 10% differences during different phases of their cycle. And so, yeah, I was not thrilled with this study and I would love to see more studies come out that actually are looking at individual differences in hormones across different subjects and within a same person to actually make these delineations of cycle and performance.
0: Yeah, and I think an interesting finding, even just in the abstract of this paper, was you shouldn't use hormonal cycles as a reason to exclude women from studies. And so, you know, on one hand, like that's a positive, right? Because that is a big bias that we have in science. Um, if you think of the biomechanics literature, especially in the nineteen hundreds, you had a lot of ten-person male college studies. And that doesn't give us a wide variety of people. So, you know, if I if I have to give them credit for something, it would certainly be the idea that, hey, we should include women more. I think another point you bring up is incredibly valid, but if we're going to do it, it's probably pretty expensive to track hormones um, accurately and you have to do it at the individual level and you have to do it a number of times, which can be a challenge for a lot of Mm -hmm. laboratories. Could you maybe talk about how you've tackled that in the past?
2: Yeah. So initially, I guess I'll talk about how I've tackled it and I'll preface this with saying that I was super fortunate at Nike to have access to a lot of things that a lot of... Academic labs don't have access to, and I was able to actually track cycles of over 20 women for three full cycles by taking every other day urine samples and getting actual plots of their estrogen, progesterone, FSH, LH levels. Um, and obviously, that I think is could be a gold standard, but it's very unrealistic for a lot of people to use. Um, but I think even just you know there are so many apps out there now that track body temperature and track your menstrual cycle for you, where you're actually telling it when you bleed, it's tracking your body temperature, that I could see a future where we don't need to buy the $700 kit per cycle, per each person, but maybe we need to get their body temperature data for past cycles over a long time for that individual, which could be easy, we just pull the data, and then we actually have them taking LH tests, or we find some tests that maybe only track estrogen progesterone, but that are a lot less, less expensive at that point. And so I don't think we're going to get away from tracking hormones because of how individual it is. But I think given we have all these devices now that do track body temperature, that does track pretty well with ovulation, um, we could get away from tracking, you know, as intensely as every other day. Um, but I do think that it is necessary. And I, I would hesitate to say that we could do it in any other way because all of the papers that are out that just track menstrual cycle from self-reported menstruation all are very variable and you know looking at three cycles of the same person's hormone data even in the same person the amount of hormonal fluctuation across the different cycles was so vast that there's no way just taking their self-reported menstruation date would be able to predict what phase they were in and so yeah. Just seeing the inner variability there, I'm very hesitant to say that we can go without, those, without the data.
0: Yeah. Kate, could you maybe comment just on general? You and I talk about this a lot, like really sexy headlines and titles <laughs> of scientific papers get talked about. Uh, moderate nuanced titles <laughs> with really long um, abstracts often don't. So could you talk about maybe how you've seen that and maybe some examples you might come up with off the top of your head? I know I'm putting you on the spot here.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, I mean, I think a prime example is what I mentioned earlier. But, for example, like barefoot slash forefoot running um, is, I think, something a lot of people have glommed on to because it was a very simple headline. Everyone should run in, in minimal shoes or should be landing on their forefoot. Um, and I think that, you know, obviously the data that's come out since has really disproven that and shown um that's potentially actually causes more injuries, or at least, you know, four foot and rear foot strikers have very similar injury rates. So there's, there's really no benefit. But that's a really hard message to turn around once, you know, the general population has kind of got that idea in their head. I think it's going to be a while before that's fully kind of um, people are just going to accept whatever foot strike pattern they have probably works for them. Um, but I think if, if we could get into a more nuanced view of that and kind of get less polarized, a more interesting discussion might be, you know, can we use, you know, barefoot or minimal running for very short periods of time? Like, go run for like two minutes in your bare feet just as a foot strengthening, not like actually as your full time running. So, I think um, to your point, if it's easier to digest and just a really bold headline, it's easy for people to um, grab onto and kind of run with. But I think. Um, at least a scientist, it gets a lot more interesting once we start getting into that nuance and say, what's the best way to apply this? Um, so hopefully we can kind of start to make some some progress in communicating that with with the running world.
0: Yeah, as a lifelong four foot striker, not by any conscious means, just that's that's how I started running. It was always a bit of an abrupt change for me in 2010 when I stopped being called some maybe not nice nicknames about twinkle toes and suddenly people are like oh you're running the right way and i i assure you (laughs) i still get injured um and one of the other conversations that'll be in this podcast series, we talk a lot about the mechanics of running and i think what we know pretty clearly is the forces are going to go somewhere and it might just mean in four foot minimal shoes you're going to feel more in your achilles and your calves and and more maximal Shoes, you're gonna feel more in your knees, and finding that variability is good. And I think that really touches nicely on what you were saying, Keely, too, right? Like it's not just a, a simple headline. It's figuring out individualized data over the course of a very long time frame. And that's what optimizes performance and reduces injury risk.
2: <laughs> yeah, but to your point, that Kinda does not moving? sound sexy at oh, all. Go ahead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it didn't? Oh man, that's a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of moving from sort of just injury risk and, and thinking about performance, one of the things, Keely, I know you've done a ton of research on recently has been actual energetics. And by energetics, I mean like fueling for ultra-distance racing. And um, I read some stuff on the Goo website, for example, looking at things like 30 grams to 120 grams of carbs per hour <laughs> can help performance. And we're seeing a lot more of this recently. Could you maybe talk about your research you've done in um, – fueling and your current stance on all of this
2: yeah so i kind of laugh at that article for goo because that's the current you know recommendations is that big of a range because people don't really know yet but they're like oh 30 to 120 grams of carbs (laughs) and you know that in, in itself is really really vast that is a very big range um and so i first got into this field um, kind of at the end of my career at Nike, I had met a professor out of Central Washington who's done a ton of research in low energy availability and carbohydrate ingestion and carbohydrate availability in muscles. And we got to thinking about the ultra running world because, you know, anecdotally, a lot of my competitors and a lot of people that I interact with in the space do not fuel. They don't know how to fuel. All of the guidelines given out by different nutrition brands are very highly variable. They're like, oh, eat one gel an hour, or maybe it's eat three gels an hour. Again, nobody's really directing the athletes on how to fuel. And so we decided to take a stab at looking At first, through a survey of 3000 trail runners to see if there was any relationship between their fueling and their propensity for negative health outcomes, maybe like low energy availability, Um, because we just really wanted some data to to be able to use for future studies to showcase the problem in this population. And so we used three validated questionnaires to start getting a better idea of how this population of trail runners had low energy availability, disordered eating, which is their relationship with food, or risk for a an eating disorder, and then exercise dependence, which is kind of what it sounds like. It's basically, you know, your risk for being overly dependent on exercise and how that impacts your day to day life. Um, And we wanted to just get that those correlations in relation to if they were willing to fuel during training runs and races. And, you know, it turned out that most people, while they were willing to fuel for those shorter runs, like hour and a half to two and a half hours, they were not increasing the amount of carbohydrates needed for those races above three hours, right, where it's actually getting to that level where the recommendation is above 60 grams of carbohydrates an hour. Um, and nobody was really moderating their intake for those longer distances. And those who were not fueling properly or sufficiently is how we kind of deemed it in the paper, um, they were at a higher risk for low energy availability. They also showed higher risk for disordered eating. And so to me, this was a really eye-opening study to not only you know provide direction for our future studies where we can actually start getting into the weeds of not enough carbohydrate ingestion during exercise and those impacts on biomarkers in the day but also it's going to be a really good study to use as a new conversation starting point for conversations with nutrition companies in the space to be like hey you are telling people to eat one gel an hour that's not only hurting them it's hurting you like they could be buying or using more carbohydrates from you but they don't even know they need to. And so it's almost like I would love it to also just be this big conversation that allows the sport to evolve and actually learn how to fuel. Because like Kate was saying, low energy availability is not a performance enhancer, right? Like it is very detrimental to performance. It results in high amounts of stress fractures, results in a lot of, you know, just life stress. People, you're not happy when you're in a super low energy availability and you're definitely not performing your greatest yeah you're hangry all the time it's miserable (laughs) so yeah i just just think you know if we can actually start talking about how much fueling you actually need to do and people start trying it they're going to feel better like instantaneously you start fueling for runs i've had people come up to me and tell me this you will just feel better your recovery will be better everything will be better and so you know that will just only help progress the sport
0: yeah i think To your point, that range of 30 to 120 grams per hour is wild. It When I wrote this down, as we were thinking about this episode, I went back and I looked at some of the gels I'm using for an upcoming race. I was like, oh, that's 40 grams. Wow, I might need to eat two or three of those every hour. And I'm certainly not the best at that. And Kate and I both come from more of like a road and track background where I think you don't think about food as much. And I've certainly (laughs) suffered a number of bonks at the hands of that just because I didn't know any better. Kelly, how are these values like empirically determined? Like how do you do this kind of testing in a lab?
2: (laughs) Um, That is a great question. So I'd say in trail runners, it's, they use a lot of muscle damage markers to determine if carbohydrate ingestion during exercise will decrease the amount of muscle damage you feel afterwards or see afterwards in a muscle biopsy. And so I think it's funny actually you're talking about the range. The one study that went up to 120 grams, they did preface the study saying that they had to gut train those those runners. So 120 grams per hour might not be something that you can just go out the door and do. It might just be a little too much for you. But basically what they had these trail runners do in this very specific study that we were very fascinated by. I won't say that it's it's like the gold standard by any means, but I think it's interesting because it was the first stab at, at measuring fueling in a trail mountain ultra. Um, they actually had people g- be given how much carbohydrate they were going to be eating in an hour. They standardized how it would look so it all looked kind of the same, but they were varying differences of carbohydrates. And they had these these runners do a pretty gnarly mountain run. And then after the, after the run, they measured how much muscle damage there were and they found significantly reduced muscle damage markers in those runners who did eat upwards of 120 grams of carbohydrates an hour and they had anecdotal evidence as well that they felt more recovered. And so... You know, it does show that there could be promise in these upper levels. And so I think more studies have to be done in that space because I don't know if we can say definitively that's exactly what we need to, to measure for these really crazy kind of long, gnarly mountain races and how fueling impacts recovery. But I do think markers of muscle damage is a good start.
0: Okay, very cool. Yeah, and I think it is a shift in the mentality too. like the old school mentality. I grew up swimming. And a lot of times in swimming you don't really think about eating. And you might do a three or four hour swim practice and you don't need a whole heck of a lot. And then now I think about trying to run that long and it would be crazy. And one of the other things I wanted to talk that's kind of tangentially related, Kate and I, like I said, we both come more from a road and track background. And we know the mechanics are really different in the predictors of success. Kate, could you maybe talk about what do you think some of the different mechanics that lead to success on the road versus on the trail is? And then, Kelly, maybe talk about some of the steep uphill research you've done.
1: Yeah. Um, so I'd say, like, there is some overlap. Like, they will find, you know, like, your velocity of VO2 max running economy type of metrics do overlap a fair amount between success in the roads and the trails. Um, but in my experience, and what I think the research does a good job of highlighting is that the muscular demands of running on a trail are so vastly different from running on a road um, that your muscular strength and your ability to um, kind of undergo those like repeated eccentric contractions on downhills are are really different and take a lot of adaptation if you're making that transition and something I struggled with. Um, I actually heard, I think, uh, Grayson Murphy recently, she described like doing a DK as like running an 800 on the track, but doing it for like an hour. And if you Mm -hmm. ever run 800 on the track, it's probably like one of the most miserable races ever. So I do think there's that like one physiological, like muscular demand um, and two just the psychology of just being like, I'm going to hurt this much for this long in those races. I think it's just kind of really adapting, like, how am I supposed to feel, you know, X amount into like a a half marathon on the trails, et cetera. And it's going to be really different than you would expect to feel on the road. So that's been a huge learning curve for me and still working on it. But it's been fun.
0: Nice. Yeah. And Keely, I know you're you're Mm -hmm. a listed author on a paper about the energetics of VK's foot races is Mm -hmm. is steeper, cheaper, which I would say that's actually a pretty sexy title as far as scientific (laughs) titles go. There's a bit of rhyming and alliteration in there.
2: (laughs) That is all Dr. (laughs) Tom's (laughs) He's very good at those.
0: Yeah, as, as many know, Roger Crom from CU Boulder, he's great with titles, a uh, great researcher too. What did you learn from VK racing and and talking about this study and like what's good, what's bad, and what do we still not know about hiking versus running?
2: Yeah, so I helped a PhD student at the time, Nicola Giovanelli, out of Italy, and who has gone on to do a ton, a lot of more studies in this area. So if you want to kind of dive deeper into this, if you look him up on PubMed, you will find a lot more studies that he's been doing recently in this area, which are really cool. Um, But our initial study was just looking at the difference between walking and running at different inclines and seeing if there was an incline at which running was more efficient than walking and vice versa. So was there an incline where walking was way more efficient um, than running? And we obviously had to keep something standard for that. So we kept the vertical speed standard. And so obviously these results are all indicative of a same vertical speed, so it's not at varying vertical speeds. Um, That's just something to note. But we did find that there was a transition point of about 15% where walking was energetically less costly than running, and so it was better to walk. Um, And I think that, you know, that is very important to get across to some trail runners because walking does not utilize the tendons as much as running does right like it's much more of a power sport you need more musculature and so <clears throat> to move up these hills more efficiently if you are wanting to cut running a like run or how much energy you need to expend down you're going to need to build up the strength a little bit, right? Because you're not getting all of that energy return from your tendons. And fun fact about the study was that even at these really high inclines, once we got above, I believe it was 25 degrees, their running was also basically walking. It just was a little bouncier, but it was still like you were, you were never had both feet off the ground. So it was not a true running gait, even though runners, clearly changed something when we told them to run versus walk. They just weren't off the ground long enough to be considered running. So we actually like quantified it as like a new kind of gate as well. And so all that to be said, I think strength is even more important for trails because you're not getting all of that energy return when you're going up these crazy climbs, even if you are quote unquote running. Um, And so, yeah, to Kate's point, while the basics of running, you know, building VO2 max, building lactate threshold, building running economy is super important to trail running. There's also this other dimension where you really do need to work on strength. You need to work on balance and stability because of how much running economy is kind of taken away when you are trying to stay balanced. Um, And so, yeah, the study was really interesting. And then Nicole has gone on to try to quantify it more in the field and decide, like, oh, is it easier to run or walk or use poles in these different settings? And he's found a lot of different results. And so, yeah, I'd point you to his work if you want to deep dive into that stuff.
0: Yeah, I'll be sure to link to a lot of his work. And then Jackson Brill also has done a number of Mm -hmm. studies about this walk to run transition going up. And what's better? It it probably depends on the person and their propensity Mm -hmm. and the length of the race kate could you maybe touch on we've done a lot of research at boa on different gear in the trail space specifically because we know as this whole podcast has really talked about the differences between trail and road running could you talk about some of the things that we measure in our trail running research and you think is maybe more important on the trail that we don't necessarily think about quite as much on the road
1: yeah for sure um so one of the key things um is ankle stability um like keely mentioned that stability and a ability to navigate over varying terrain, maintain your balance is really critical in trail running more so than running on a flat road in a straight line. Um, So that's one of our primary measurements. And then getting more into like the equipment side of it, the fit of a shoe, um, you can imagine moving in all these different directions, um, you know, downhill where you're applying, landing with a lot of force. Um, The fit of a shoe is challenged a lot more. and so you might look for something a little bit different in a road shoe versus a trail shoe and everything from traction to how snug it fits if you're thinking about like doing technical descents, for example. Um, so I think it's been really interesting in the footwear space. There's been, you know, decades of research on, on road shoes and research on trail shoes is, is relatively recent and kind of gaining momentum. Um, so kind of seeing what does really perform best on the trails, um, I'm really excited about.
0: Yeah. And Keely, I know you have had some anchor roles in the past, maybe probably more famously than others. And what do you think about, you've got Western States coming up. What do you think about when you choose a trail shoe? What are the attributes that you find most important?
2: Yeah. I, I like to think if a trail shoe is really good, it feels like it's part of your body. So that means your foot is not moving independently of the shoe and that when you place your foot somewhere, you're not thinking about what your foot or shoe is doing. Um, And so what that means for me is that the traction has to be sufficient to not slide on, you know, rocks or dirt or whatever it is. Um, But I think the most important thing is that the containment system, so what holds your foot into the shoe has to be really, really dialed and actually hold your foot in so that your foot's not like moving forward when you're landing, moving sideways when you're landing. And so that when you're landing, You're just landing and it's not like two different motions happening at once. Um, And so when you're running a really steep downhill or something like that, you're pretty confident of where you're putting your feet and you're not feeling like, oh, my foot's going to slide off this footbed. And, you know, that could ultimately result in an ankle roll, which we do not want. So, yeah, I'd say containment for me is number one and keeping the foot from moving independently of the shoe. And then obviously traction is super, super important as well. And then probably the last thing I look for is a little less important in my mind, but also important is like maybe the durability of the upper because I've had trail shoes before where, you know, you blow through the upper in less than a hundred miles, you can't wear that shoe anymore. And so you do need the shoe to not not only perform well, but it, it has to be durable as well.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. As we're kind of coming around to a close here, I'd love to just sort of leave listeners with actionable things to take away from this you know one of the beautiful things i think about science is that there's never a final answer on the flip side outside of academia and science that can be really challenging because people are like what the heck like i just uh, now there's a huge range of carbohydrates i should maybe ingest there's not a right way to run so maybe kate Mm -hmm. if we could start with you and you could talk about when somebody thinks about form coaching um, if you tune into any major marathon you hear people talking about form how do you think about running form um, as somebody goes through training? And then Keely, feel free to jump in, but I have a separate question for you.
1: Yeah, um, so I think the first thing is, like you commented on Dan earlier about being young and people you know, kind of commenting on your running form. I would never want people to be so like stressed about their running form. You, like, We're never gonna have an, one universally optimal running form. So I'd say run how you run. Um, there may be certain things like, you know, if your knee is collapsing medially, we know that's going to put a lot of load on the cartilage and the cartilage is not great at um, adapting quickly and so maybe that's an area where for most people it's not great to put a ton of excessive load on it. So if that's something that you're finding, you're know, having knee issues, um, you can potentially work with a, a physical therapist to, to address those. Um, and then the other thing sometimes is, is cadence. I think, again, that's maybe one of those other sexy headlines that just said 180 steps per minute is mm-hmm. like the universal optimal, which I think is very arbitrary, right? Like that was taken from male runners running in, in track races. That is definitely not universally applicable. But let's say you're having a, you know, frequent injuries and your cadence is like 156 or 160 or there's something kind of well below um, or quite low. Maybe that's something again, um, I think if you're ever concerned about your form, working with a physical therapist is a good idea and they could help you maybe increase your cadence. Um, But I wouldn't want people to be stressed and totally distracted in their running kind of just like obsessing over their running form. Instead, it's probably a better idea, like Keeley had suggested. Like work with a strength coach and try and just become more resilient, um, because ultimately that's probably going to be good for your performance um, and make you more resilient at the same time.
0: How about you, Keeley?
2: So, in regards to the fueling, or in regards to the injury,
0: in regards to running form, we'll get to fueling in a moment. <laughs>
2: Oh, got it. Yeah. Um, I would say in regards to running form that you have to stick with what works for you and that might not look sexy. Like you were saying, Dan, your gait might look weird, but if I were to like switch your gait 180 degrees and have you become a heel striker, that's going to be way more detrimental to you than just staying with what your body is used to and what you've built up musculature to support. And so I've had a lot of people, especially when I first got my job at Nike, they would be like, can I come in and you can like correct my gait and change everything about me? And I was like no (laughs) like i don't think there is a one gate fits all it's more independent individual than that and i do think that we all have our own unique gate and obviously there are certain things like overextending outside of your center of mass those things there are going to be negative outcomes from those but i'd say like if you're running natural to yourself you're mostly landing under your center of mass that's kind of what we found is most important not four foot or heel Um, there's not that much that you need to change. It's just really getting better at your own running gait and becoming more efficient at that and building up the musculature so you can support it. And then I'd say for trail running in particular, because I do think that is a little bit more of a finesse sport, um, thinking of a higher cadence is, I think, advantageous on the trail, especially going uphill or downhill, so that Uphill, you know, you're on the ground longer for less time. And in my mind, I found it easier to navigate around the rocks. And then downhill, I think the shorter cadence allows you to overcorrect if you are finding yourself about to twist an ankle or land on something incorrectly. Whereas if you were bounding downhill and you were landing for a really long time, you're... Likelihood of landing and then twisting an ankle or landing incorrectly is a lot higher than if you're taking a lot more smaller steps. And so, I do think if you're new to the trails and you're finding yourself like really, really cautious on downhills or uphills, um, just think about shortening that cadence a little bit, staying on the ground a little less long, and seeing how that that makes you feel.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think you know the take-home message for both of you is lean into maybe what your body what your speed, everything is, is allowing you to do. And probably doing some variations in speed work and trail work in long runs will probably make you find an optimum for you. And it's you know, there's no universal truth. Uh, Kate, you said 156, um, you said an optimum of 180 for cadence. I was actually, it made me think, because that's the other thing. As a four foot striker, you tend to have a shorter stride. And so like I ran my marathon PR, which is 223, at 190 steps a minute, and my heart rate was 178 beats a minute. And those are both really high values, and I don't have either of those displayed on my watch because I know like, that just knowing what the quote-unquote normative values are would really mess with my head. <laughs> I don't want to know that. So you know, lean into what you do, and I think if you do the speed work and you do some strength work, a lot of times we find people do follow or they tend to find an optimum for them. So shifting over to you, Keeley, I think one of the questions that I have, if you could talk about like first for a female athlete that's thinking about fueling training, especially with respect to hormones, I'd love to hear how you go about individuals, individualizing that. And then probably selfishly, like I'd wonder, I don't know if there's any research on the male hormone cycles, if they change Mm -hmm. at all, or if men should be thinking about that while they're training, or maybe you just don't know.
2: Yeah. So um, this is the one field of sports medicine research that is less studied in the male population than the female population. So there's not a ton of research done on male hormones and how male hormones might fluctuate or be diminished by inadequate fueling. But there are, you know, some hypotheses starting and some um, studies around low energy availability in males where it shows decreases in testosterone, which obviously could have negative effects on things like libido and recovery and strength and all of these things. And so, yeah, I wish I could say there's a lot of studies on that. There are not yet, but I really hope there, and I know that there are going to be more in the future. I think... Also, from a female lens, um, it's, again, super highly individualized, and I wish I could give people more of a definitive answer, but I think we honestly just don't know how to tune your fueling to your cycle yet to actually give you proper advice. But I think what I just emphasize with my female athletes that I coach who've either dealt with low energy availability in the past or eumenorrhea where you've had cycles, menstrual cycles that are irregular or amenorrhea where your cycles are absent – I just really try to emphasize the increase of carbohydrates because most of the time their decrease in hormone levels are because they're inadequately fueling with carbohydrates. There are a number of studies out that have shown that as well. And so typically what I'll do with my athletes is just make sure they're fueling before I run, during a run and after a run and that they're not trying to cut out carbohydrates. Because I think that is one thing that was popularized for a while and a lot of people thought that cutting out carbohydrates was a way to get leaner, a way to get faster, all of these things. And it turns out that actually our muscles just really need sugar. And a lot of our (laughs) our hormonal processes need sugar (laughs) and our brains need sugar and our body can't function normally without adequate sugar, especially when we're performing at these really high levels and we're training our body to these extreme levels. That just, so that's my number one thing with female athletes um, who have either had irregular cycles in the past or currently have no cycle um, is really trying to increase that carbohydrate intake.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So maybe, you know, track things a little more closely if you feel like you're having an issue and then just take note of how you're feeling and see Mm -hmm. if, if that plays a role.
2: Exactly, and I guess a little more specific is one thing I've had some of my athletes do which they really like is write down which which day of their cycle they're in. Again, it's not a foolproof method unless you have access to pee sticks that you could do every other day and you are really, really wealthy, which would be a really fun study, so go ahead and do it. Um, but if they're tracking their cycle via body temperature or just calendar-based tracking, I have them write down how they're feeling after every run and what they fueled with and what they fueled with that, inc- that total day. So then, you know, maybe maybe someone does notice the effects of having high progesterone and they feel like their carbohydrate metabolism is different. And so maybe during those days for that specific athlete, again, being very individualized you notice how you respond to things a little differently. So we adjust. So we maybe we do eat differently during different phases of the cycle, but we're only doing that after we've actually tracked a couple cycles worth of fueling, running, and how we feel so that we can start building a bigger picture for that athlete. Because, again, it's not one size fits all, and one person might be able to, you know, crush carbohydrates during their entire cycle. Who knows? Um, and so, yeah, just just doing that little experiment with yourself could really help.
0: There's a lot of parallels with what Kate was saying about form. And I think figuring out what works for you, if it does work, probably lean into it. And if you're having some issues, maybe just this hypervigilance of tracking can help you figure out what you need to pay attention to. And then like you said, sometimes you just need to ignore some signals, like I do with maybe my heart rate or my cadence. I am happy uh, based on what you just said about carbs as I look at my lunch over here, though. Um, So with that, thank you both so much for your time. I think this was incredibly helpful. And I think it's a lot of actionable insights any last words? Mm,
2: I guess I have one last little rant. But if you're running in long trail ultra run, ultra marathons, we do know that most people in this sport don't reach the recommended guidelines. We've seen a lot of studies that show that now. And we've seen that, you know, lack of fueling during these long races can decrease your likelihood of finishing, can decrease your body's ability to recover you know, could potentially maybe increase your propensity for low energy availability. And so I would just like to reemphasize that if we wanna even just start with the ACSM guidelines of fueling, if you're going out for runs like an hour and a half to two and a half hours, let's fuel like 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrates an hour. And then if we're going out for those really long runs, like over three hours, let's really try to get close to that 60 grams of carbohydrates an hour or more, which is like three to four gels an hour, totally doable. And start small, right? So just start with these little goals for yourself and see how they make you feel. And if you're like, there's no way I can stomach 60 grams an hour, I'm only doing 10 right now. Okay, well, then let's go to 30. And then maybe the next month, you're going to go to 40. And the next month, you'll go to 50. You don't have to become a hero overnight. But just slowly increasing the carbohydrates you're fueling with during these long, long endurance bouts is going to really help things. And so that is my little rant to end for all of you endurance crushers out there who are who are priding yourselves on not fueling. Let's try to change that
1: narrative a little bit.
0: I appreciate that. And I'm in the, the middle of trying to fuel more as well and figure out how to tolerate it. So I appreciate that. How about you Kate?
1: Yeah, I honestly think that's that's a great message to end on, you know, as we talk about like maybe these these headlines about biomechanics and shoes, etc um, that's all, it's all fun and exciting. Um, but kind of maintaining your health long-term is going to be the like number one thing for performance. So kind of not getting sucked into these sexy headlines and, you know, fueling properly and training properly. Um, will get you
0: furthest in the long run for sure. Great. Thank you guys so much. This has been another episode of the science of performance podcast. Thank you, Keely and Kate.
2: Thanks Dan.
0: Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Science of Performance podcast. It's been a blast talking about these topics, and I hope you have some questions as well. I'm going to do a final episode after all seven episodes air, where I'm going to answer any outstanding listener questions. So please feel free to drop those in an email to research at boatechnology.com. Or if you're a free trail member, you can put this in the forum. Thank you.